And as you're seated, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And we'll look at verses 31 of chapter 8 all the way down to chapter 9, verse 1. Let's begin our time by reading this text together. I'll read it for us out loud. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Just in case you missed it, some major events on the Christian calendar happened just this past week. Uh, Tuesday was Shrove Tuesday, or Pancake Tuesday, or Fat Tuesday, or Mardi Gras, no matter which term you want to use. If you don't know what that is, it's typically a day of gorging before a traditional 40-day fast that happens before Easter. This day, for some, marks the last opportunity to use up eggs and fats uh, before embarking upon this spiritual journey many call Lent, which is why it gets the name Pancake Tuesday. Uh, Pancakes are the perfect way of using up all these ingredients in the house. And so many people do that. It represents a day of indulgence before obligatory religious sacrifice for some. Shrove Tuesday is then followed by Ash Wednesday, which again, just happened this past week. It's the official start of Lent, if you're not familiar with it. And some uh, mainstream denominational churches, clergy will create ash from last year's Palm Sunday services And then they'll rub that on the foreheads of their parishioners in the shape of a cross. And then at that point, people will give up certain foods, such as milk and chocolate or eggs, maybe alcohol. Maybe they expand it to something broader like not watching TV as much or not smoking. And this is supposedly to happen for 40 days in honor of the season that we are supposedly now in, Lent which just comes from the Latin word meaning 40. It marks the 40 days before Easter Sunday. And these are to consist of prayer, doing penance, uh, repentance of sins, almsgiving, atonement, 
Self-denial. Why? Why would anybody do this? Why do you need to do this 40 days before Easter, according to some? The point is to draw closer to God, like Jesus did when he was tempted for 40 days in the desert. So for many in mainstream religious backgrounds, what this season marks is 40 days of spiritually intense and focused Christ-like living. 40 days to be like Jesus out of 365. While these traditions aren't necessarily wrong, they expose a potentially dangerous tendency among us all. And that is to confine our expressions of piety, our faithfulness, our discipleship, whatever you want to call it, to something manageable, like a few days on a calendar. I say potentially dangerous because, after all, I mean, anybody, anybody can do anything as long as they know it's only for a little bit of time, right? I mean, you could do the religious thing for a few days, You can live for Jesus as long as it's not all the time. I mean, you could sacrifice some stuff for God as long as you don't have to sacrifice everything. I mean, it's not that hard if you can confine it to bite-sized, manageable portions and still retain the bulk of your life for yourself, is it not? Doesn't manageable, meager commitment feel good? Let me ask you, are you ever comforted by the idea that you can still basically get what you want out of life and still end up in heaven with Jesus as long as you try to give up some stuff for him from time to time? A few days here or there, a few dollars in the offering box, the Salvation Army 10 to your favorite charity. Maybe your assurance as a follower of Jesus comes from Sunday church attendance. Occasional Bible reading, not watching certain kinds of movies or going certain places. All of us, every one of us, all the way from the back to the front, to me. We all have this default list of religious activity that we use to reassure ourselves that we're living for Jesus. It's possible for all of us to have small manageable sacrifices that we can use to comfort ourselves that we're really committed to Christ, that we're really ready to suffer for the Savior as texts like this radically proclaim. And while we know we could do more, we know we could give more, we know we could sacrifice more, what we're doing is better than nothing, right? Wrong. Don't be deceived. Such behaviors alone, apart from radical, underlying, pervasive commitment to following Christ, betray a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. And even more importantly, such a shallow understanding of discipleship points to an even deeper misunderstanding of who Jesus actually is himself. What's on the line here in understanding this text? Well, for some, 
It may be the difference between heaven and hell. For others, it could be the difference between those you love being in heaven or hell. What it means to follow Jesus has obviously been a concern for Christians down through the ages. I mean, after all, it's not hard to like Jesus, really. What's not to like about him? But the question that comes for us is, do we really need to live for him? That's the bigger question. And if so, how radical must that be? Mark's text has been clarifying that question for centuries. And now it does the same for us today. After all, you need to remember something. Mark is more than likely writing to a first century audience who had recently or would soon literally see people who claim to follow Christ hanging, bleeding, dying, burning at the hands of hostile Roman emperors. Why would anyone want to associate with this Christ? And the natural question that would come up is, could there be an easier way? Were these just the super committed, the ones who would die in this way? Or is this the expectation of everyone who would follow Christ? Is it possible to have a Jesus without a cross? In reading Mark so far, Jesus has been presented as an authoritative teacher, a powerful miracle worker. And as we saw last week, the turning point of the book of Mark, he's finally presented as the Messiah. If you weren't here, a brief review is helpful. Messiah, by that we mean, or when we say the word Christ, same thing, a hero, a promised deliverer, a special kingly figure sent by God to rescue his people from oppression. The Messiah was the one who would fix the predicament of God's people. The promised one of Jewish hope, the Davidic redeemer or rescuer, the eschatological king through whom God would deliver Israel from its enemies and cause them to live in peace. And I would say to that, amen, I love that about Jesus. But here, we immediately move from the highest high to the lowest low. And the ideological transition in this text alone is unfathomable. While it's good that they recognize Jesus to be the one who saves, this text makes it exceedingly clear that they must also recognize him as the one who suffers. And this seemingly unfortunate fact has massive implications for their response to him. Why? Because they're ultimately his followers. Think about that term for a moment. What does it mean to be a follower? It means that someone's leading and that where they go, you go. And whatever happens to him could also happen to them. So bringing it back around to us, if you are a follower of Jesus or you are considering following Jesus, you need to take note of a theme that's here in these verses and that is this, the necessity of suffering. You cannot read these Verses without coming away with that thought, the necessity of suffering. The Messiah, it's necessary for him to suffer, and then he immediately goes on to say that his followers will also suffer as they follow him. 
And so this text, and sermon likely, is intended to prepare would-be followers of Jesus for a life of suffering as radical as that may seem. Now, I like the fact that the text actually prepares us for such radical discipleship. And by the way, for those of you who aren't familiar with Christian terms, when I say discipleship, I just simply mean being a follower of Jesus. It would be the same thing as saying being a Christian. But discipleship is the biblical term that's used. So as the text prepares us for such radical discipleship, it gives us some ways that, that are helpful for us. It gives us some considerations that actually do prepare us for this journey of following Christ at such a high cost if we would embark upon that journey. And it's all centered around three considerations. I'll give them for you now, and then we'll dive into them in more detail throughout. The three considerations that help us embark upon this journey of radical discipleship are our Lord's destiny, His demand, and His display of power. Our Lord's destiny, his demand, and his display of power. You see how our Lord's destiny prepares us for radical discipleship in verses 31 through 33. Look with me again at just verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and killed and after three days rise again. Now, counter-cultural expectation... Jesus reveals here that he, as the Messiah, must suffer. And this will have huge implications for all those who are loyal to him. I mean, notice how he presents his destiny here. It says that he strictly charged them, remember back in verse 30, he strictly charged them not to tell anyone who he was. And we thought that that was rather strange. But the reason why, I told you last week, was because he needed to define his terms. They had one expectation of what the Messiah is, or was, and would be. But he needed to teach them more. He needed to fill in the gaps concerning this Messiah and his plan. And he does so here in this verse in an unacceptable and inconceivable way. Notice the terms that he uses here. He first says, the Son of Man. Now, we haven't seen this since chapter 2, but just as a review, the title, Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and it's a passage about a, one who would come with unique authority over the earth and rule it for himself. Now, the Jews themselves didn't quite understand or connect that the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 would also be the Messiah promised in other places of Scripture, but here Jesus begins to connect the two. He's just properly noted among with their own voice that, yes, I am the Messiah. And at the same time, he immediately comes right behind it and says, the Son of Man, same thing as the Messiah, must suffer. And what we're starting to see here is that Son of Man would have been understood as a term of authority. And what Jesus is beginning to do is take that term of authority and begin to wrap this theme of suffering around it so that it would have its fullest picture. He says that, the Son of Man must suffer many things. They had failed to connect the suffering texts of the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. Man-centered teaching at that day had taught them to expect exclusively a Messiah who would inflict suffering, not a Messiah who would suffer himself. This didn't make any sense. Not only is he going to suffer, but notice how the text continues, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Now those groups may not mean that much to you, 
But those three parties comprised the Jewish Sanhedrin. The leading representatives of God's people Israel would reject the Messiah? The suffering will not come from the wicked or the godless, the worst of society, but you're going to be Jesus rejected by the best? The most respected people in our culture? And be killed? The Messiah was supposed to do the killing. He was the one that was going to expel the Gentiles. He was the one that was going to decimate the enemies of God and he himself will die? This doesn't make any sense to the first century Jewish mind. And, if it wasn't bad enough, after three days rise again. If the last three topics were unacceptable, this one was inconceivable. You know what I mean by that? That was just so far out of their purview. We're familiar with Jesus and the story of somebody rising again from the dead after three days. But there had never been a time in human history where someone had brought themselves back to life. They had seen, obviously, stories of resurrection. They know that Jesus himself had that power to do that to others. But once that power itself dies, then what? And yet here he says that I will rise again. And you know what? The funny thing is, the disciples themselves still will not get this even till the resurrection itself. They don't understand it. It's just so far out of their purview. And verse 32 tells us in one simple little sentence, and he said this plainly, plainly. Jesus here has radically redefined the common messianic definition beyond all practical recognition, and so he must plainly show that this disgrace involved in rejection and execution is not something to fear or to hide or to reject. And I think it's good for us to remember that despite the claims of liberals and agnostics, the suffering of our Savior, Jesus Christ, His bloody death on a cross to satisfy God's wrath was not an expression, as some would say, of divine child abuse, which is the popular term these days. This was the plan of God through the ages, to save a sinful people by paying the cost of that sin for them. And there was no way for that to happen apart from Jesus himself providing that. Either they would have paid it, or he was going to have to pay it. Zechariah 11 and 12 and 13, those chapters promised that there would be one who would come and be pierced for mankind. Isaiah 53 spoke of a servant of God who would suffer and die and whose fate is some way linked to the restoration of his people. There are people out there today who says that well, Jesus was just a good hero figure and he died a tragic death at the hands of a bloodthirsty Roman emperor. No, it was not an accident. He did not fall into this. It was a necessity. It was the plan from the very beginning. And as much as it may not make sense to us, this was what God wanted. And it clearly didn't make sense. Look at verse 32, second half. Despite the clear presentation, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, it's interesting, just as Peter was the spokesperson back in verse 30 for the whole group, so also he seems to be the spokesperson here. And they're saying, hey, this can't happen. This is not supposed to happen. And I love how it phrases it in the ESV. He took him aside. Have you ever been taken aside? I have. Yeah. 
Sometimes it was helpful, sometimes it wasn't. I do remember one time where there was an older pastor who saw me doing something that he thought was less than helpful, and he did. He took me aside out of respect and kindness and, and showed me something that needed to be done. It was private, it was important, it was helpful, and I got back to it. I have had other people take me aside, and I thought, who are you? <laughs> Uh, in this particular situation, we clearly have the latter. Who are you? Who did Peter think he was to take Jesus himself aside and correct his understanding of the Messiah? What does Peter say? It doesn't tell us, but clearly he rebukes him. It's a strong word. It's the same word that Jesus used back in verse 30. It's the same word that Jesus used throughout to rebuke demons. That means it, he, he tried to silence them. He tried to, to shut him up, if you will. But notice what Jesus does here in response. This is fascinating. When you see verse 33, I love these little details in the text. It says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So Peter has taken him aside and has him off of the corner, presumably up to the disciples because they were all thinking that this is radical. And before he actually rebukes Peter and calls him Satan in the presence of all those men, he looks at them first so as to communicate that this is not just for Peter, this is for all of you. You need to know that this type of resistance to the plan of God to suffer is satanic. The word Satan literally means opponent or adversary. But, it's never used in a general sense like, oh, you're my enemy. It's always used in the Bible to refer to the enemy, the opponent, the adversary, Satan himself. What is ultimately being communicated here is that their denial of suffering was so much at odds with the thought of God that Jesus attributed it to a more sinister and supernatural source, Satan himself. And ultimately, we learn here that the plan of God is different than the plan of men. It's a reverse economy. God's ways are higher. God's ways are different. And a human perspective, merely on the salvation of the world, cannot grasp the divine purpose. To us, this seems like a strange way to save the world, but for God, it was the only way. And believe it or not, the plan of God from the beginning of time, was that the Savior would suffer. And this is paradigmatic for all of us who would be followers of Jesus. You understand why they would resist this, right? It wasn't just that they were concerned about Jesus' well-being. They had identified themselves with Him. They were ultimately concerned for their own well-being. Why is that? Because we all know that what's true of the leader is typically true of those following him. No one wants to play for a losing coach. No one wants to invest in a failing startup. No one wants to fight for a defeated general to train with an out-of-shape fitness instructor. Why? Because the success or outcome of the leader has real implications for the follower. They're identifying with him, and he's saying he's going to die? That's why the Jews would want to identify with a strong Jewish leader who would kick butt, take names, kill everybody, because they didn't want to die. 
It's, this is, they know that this has implications for them, and yet what Jesus does here, as they recognize him as the Messiah, is equivalent to, notice, they just say, you're the hero, you're the savior, you're the redeemer. This is equivalent to a guy that proclaims himself to be the champion, but predicts that he's going to lose the fight. A general inviting the, the troops to follow him in a battle, but who predicts that he will die shamefully on the front lines. It just doesn't make sense. These are natural thoughts. The natural thoughts, the thing that they would normally think, the thing that you think and the thing that I would think is that messiahs and saviors are supposed to win and rule. That's why we would align ourselves with them. But Jesus has to clarify this. Jesus has to speak plainly to them. Who wants to follow a suffering, disrespected, murdered Messiah? What kind of Savior is that? Who wants to follow this type of a Lord? And yet Jesus is clear. If you're following me, this is the type of Lord that I am. Turn with me in your Bibles over to John. It's just two books over. John chapter 15. This text was brought to my attention this past week. And it may open your eyes to what I'm trying to communicate this morning. John chapter 15. And look carefully in your Bibles. Even make a note of it if you do that. Verses 18 through 21. You don't hear this discussed very much. But Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the upper room. Or on their way actually to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says here. If the world hates you. You know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Turn with me back to Mark 8. Do you see the clear promise here? The clear implication that if this happens to Jesus, it will naturally happen to his followers? What you need to get from this is that your Christology, what you believe about Jesus Christ, has a huge impact upon how you follow him or your conduct. Christology affects conduct and here's the fair warning for all of us and the warning that we need to be sharing with other people we follow a suffering savior now think through the implications of that see the danger for us in our current generation is a crossless or consumer christianity it was a trend a few years ago i remember hearing about it reading in a christian magazine that some churches were actually taking crosses out of their church because they thought that it would be offensive to the people who were there. Personally, I have no love, affection for uh, a wooden cross in a church or not in a church. I, but if you're taking it out solely because you're afraid you're going to offend people, what is that communicating? That you don't like the Jesus that's presented in the Bible. Because the Jesus that we see presented in the Bible is constantly associated with what? A cross. Death. And that's why I call it consumer Christianity. One that says, look, let me tell you all the assets of following Jesus, but I'm not going to tell you about any of the liabilities. 
He can just make your life better. He can make it more meaningful. He can make it more purposeful. He can fill you with all of the stuff that you want deep down inside with no implications for you. Consumer Christianity is not Christianity at all. See, when you say you want to follow Jesus, three things need to take place. First, you need to accept God's plan for him. If you don't believe that Jesus had to die to forgive you of your sin, you don't understand sin and you don't understand salvation. You also need to accept your need for that plan. As offensive as it may seem that somebody would need to die on your behalf, you first have to trust in that yourself. And understand that I need that. My sin was that bad. And then here's the third thing, the one that people often skip. And that this suffering is promised for all who would follow him. Contrary to the strong and mild forms of prosperity teaching today, look, I want you to know something. Clarity on our Lord's condemnation and crucifixion actually encourages us through criticism and conflict. The criticism and conflict that you face for copying Christ, for living like Him, you should be relieved. You should be comforted. The reality of Christ suffering Himself should enable you to persevere and know that despite what the popular preachers may say, you're not at home in this world. Like, sometimes it's easy for us to think, well, if the Lord's not blessing me and my life's not going the way that I want it to go, I must be in sin. You know what? That might actually be an evidence that you're living for Jesus. And it might actually be confirmation that you have taken up your cross and followed Him. It might actually be that if your life is going just peachy fine, that you're not actually following Jesus. Now, I don't have any proof one way or the other. We live in a weird culture. It is an anomaly, the current situation in which we live where we can follow Christ without much cost to ourselves. It's a geographical anomaly, and it's a chronological anomaly. I say it's a geographical one because right now, today, in places in the Middle East, people are literally losing their heads over the gospel. And I say it's a chronological one because for the large percent of, I would say, 80% plus of church history, it has always been hard to follow Jesus. Have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Yet here in our culture, for some weird, odd, strange reason, we can still make money, we can still have the general favor of people around us, and we think that that's normal. Listen, I want you to know that that's just weird. I, don't, I, don't, I can't explain it. It's like we're in the twilight zone, because really what's happened more than anything else down through history and down across the world is that God's people suffer when they follow Him. And the example of Christ proves that for us. You may not be the most popular at work or school. That could be an evidence that you're really following Jesus. You may not make as much money as you want to because of your ethical code, but that may be a sign that you're actually following Jesus. For those of you who are single, your Friday night scene might seem 
end up being a little milder than most. That could be a sign that you're actually following Jesus. See, the point is that knowing our Lord's destiny prepares us for a life of suffering, a a life of radical discipleship. But that's not all. Our Lord's demand also prepares us for this suffering as well. Look at the demand in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, do you see here that Jesus demands the same fate of his followers and provides them with a sound explanation as to why this suffering is worth it? So he's already said, look, this is going to happen to me. But now he's saying, and here's the hard part, and this is going to happen to you. And you need to know that. Let's notice this command in particular it's interesting here that Mark adds these little t- words and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Now, Jesus is in a, a, a relatively pagan area, Caesarea Philippi. And the crowd here is not being used in the same way it's been used in times past. It's just basically broadening the term out as it did in Mark chapter 4. That Now, this isn't just these 12, but anybody who would follow Jesus. It, it broadens out. He's clarifying here that the suffering is not just for him, but it's for anyone who would follow him. That's a helpful thing. If you're going to follow me, if, if, if you want to be my disciple, if you're going to associate with me, two things must be true of you. And the two things that he says here are deny yourself and take up your cross. And then the last one, follow me, is actually an imperative, a command repeating what was already said. So let's just focus on those two. Deny himself. What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, we know from like actually reading our Bibles that uh, what it means to deny, think about it, just only a few chapters later, Peter is going to deny Jesus. Do you remember that? It's the same word that's used here. Deny. It means to completely disassociate yourself from someone to sever the relationship but notice that the object of denial here is not someone else but it is self how do you do that how do you refuse to be guided by your own self-interest how do you act contrary to your own self-preserving nature I think the most helpful way I could put it for you and what Jesus is commanding us to do here to use our popular terminology is to stop being the center of your own spiritual universe we do everything for ourselves I mean think of the last time you went to a buffet and a salad bar do you look for the worst tomatoes in the bowl or the best ones Do you look for the wilted lettuce or the crispy lettuce? You're not thinking, you know what? I think I'm going to get this nasty lettuce because I want to serve the people behind me. All I'm trying to say, I'm not trying to give a lesson on how to go to the buffet. I'm just saying that we just naturally look out for ourselves. I've used this illustration before, but when you look at a group photo, what's the first photo you look for? Yourself. And Jesus here is saying, I want you to deny that. You may be the center of your own little world right now, but it can't be that way anymore if you're going to follow me. Now, what's interesting here is that, let me tell you what denying yourself doesn't mean. It doesn't mean denying something to yourself like Lent. Lent. 
It means denying yourself. It gets a lot deeper than that. It's not occasionally skipping a meal or doing occasional tokens of generosity or fulfilling your good deed per day. It is something at the core of who you are. Christ is now ruling and reigning. You are no longer the center. And then the second thing that he commands them to do is take up your cross. Now, let me go ahead and tell you what this is not. I'll do it by asking a question. Uh, What are the popular perceptions of the cross? What do people most commonly think of when they think of the cross today? Well, I think of a piece of jewelry. They think of a tattoo. They think of wall art. Or they think of having a bad day. This is just the cross I have to bear. Now, I'm going to be really clear. Nobody, 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 nobody in the first century would have thought any of those things about a cross. Nothing like that. Do you know what it means to take up cross? Like what they would have thought of? It was shocking language that evoked vivid and horrifying images of people actually bleeding with a beam of wood on their back, marching to their death in shameful publicity. Jesus is literally warning them of the likelihood of physical death. Not merely the acceptance of discomfort. Now again, although lesser aspects may apply, although we will make sacrifices for our Lord, what he is ultimately preparing them for is the fact that if you follow me, it is extremely possible that you will die for doing so. Now remember my cultural anomaly explanation from earlier. Most people knew that to follow Christ would be to risk their own lives. And then... He doesn't just make it a condition like, if you want to follow me, do these things. He then commands them, follow me. Have you thought about that? Jesus commands that of you? It's just a nice option. The risen Lord himself commands you to follow him in that way. But by that Your life will look like Jesus' life. You will then follow his course. You will be dedicated to his kingdom and the gospel. You will demand, I mean, he is demanding here the death of your own worldly, prideful ambitions for his. And the question that I would ask, and the question that you need to ask, I mean, like really quickly, is why on earth would anybody want to do this? I mean, if you only get one shot at this life, Why would you ever take yourself out of the driver's seat? Why would you not pursue as much pleasure and possessions as you possibly could for your own self? Well, notice in verse 35 that little word for. It's an explanation. Particularly here, it's a motivation. Jesus provides some motives. Some motives for following him. So if you're on the fence today, and you're kind of wondering, all right, should I follow Jesus? Should I not follow Jesus? Here's some motivations for following Jesus. And if you want to think of this in terms of like a cost-benefit analysis, that's actually what Jesus is doing here. It's almost like he's taking a chart, and he's listing out the pros and the cons, and he's going to list three different categories, and he's inviting everyone who's listening to think, all right, should I follow this Jesus or not? Assets, liabilities. Here's what we have. We've got two options. 
So if you're filling out your chart today and you're trying to figure out whether or not you want to follow Jesus, I want you to know at the top of the chart, you're going to put self on one side, you're going to put the Savior on the other side. And then there's three categories we're going to think through. And those categories are life, world, and significance. Life, world, and significance. All right, so here's our first option. If you're thinking about following Jesus or you're calling people to follow Jesus, you first need to think through physical life versus eternal life. Which one do I want? Physical life versus eternal life. Now, what you need to know is that the word life in Greek that you see here can mean two things. Not just for Christians, but for any Greek person reading the New Testament, they would have thought the word suke, life, from which we get our word psychology, could mean two things. It would either mean the soul, the eternal part of man, or just the physical life. This same word, you may find this interesting, actually occurs four times in three verses. You see it translated life and life uh, in verse 35. And then you see it translated soul in verse 36 and soul again in verse 37. I just want you to know they're the same word. But it can mean one of two things. It doesn't mean both. It can mean one of two. So let me walk through what Jesus says here. And I'm going to expand the translation, okay, so that you can grasp the way they would have thought of this when they first heard it. Jesus is basically arguing, living for physical life, what you can touch and taste and see and hear and smell and, smell and feel in this world, as opposed to following Jesus, will result in a loss of eternal life. Losing physical life for the sake of the person and proclamation of Jesus will result in the preservation of eternal life. So, Living for this life here and now results in eternal loss. Losing this life in the here and now and not living for it results in eternal gain. All right, now if I'm looking at my chart, that's a pretty compelling reason to follow Jesus. I, I like it because notice he adds in verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What a great question. I need you to see this here. Please notice with me that he is talking about the forfeiture of the soul. There has been a movement that has existed for the last 50 years in Christendom that has tried to say that, you know what, you can be a Christian, but you don't necessarily have to be a disciple of Jesus. That's if you really want to be committed. Listen to me. There is no such thing as level one and level two type of Christianity. Jesus is equating following him with eternal loss or reward. Not just a better existence in heaven, or you could squeak by by the skin of your teeth and hope you make it. I mean, it is a radical claim. If he is not at the center of your universe, you are forfeiting eternal life, like John 3.16 that you know so well, eternal life. That's a pretty good reason to follow Jesus. There's another motivation. If I was going down to the second line of our chart, it would be the material world versus the eternal world. You can pick. You can either have the material world or the eternal world. The, the word world here is just, it's simply a figure of speech for everything that the world has to offer. And we talk about that. Like, I'd give the world for that. We mean I would give everything that I had for that. 
The height of human achievement measured in terms of earthly life, uh, dying with the most toys, if you will. You've heard that phrase? Cars, stocks, houses, money, stuff. I think my favorite word is stuff. Stuff. You could choose between stuff here or eternity. And the question that he asks is, why would you exchange anything? Why would you give up anything? Or why would you not give up anything in this life for eternal gain? Many of you may remember from your time in high school the the old German story about Faust and Mephistopheles. It's been rewritten in several different forms and fashions down through the years, but typically when we talk about making a deal with the devil... We're ultimately getting back to the old German story about Faust. Faust was a scholar who was highly successful, but he was dissatisfied with his life, which led him to make a pact with the devil, Mephistopheles, in the story. Now, interestingly, the way that the devil is presented in the story is as the red, pointy, horned, pitchfork type of guy. And basically, Mephistopheles makes this deal with the devil, and he exchanges his soul for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. And after getting what he wants in this life, he made a 24-year deal. The term ends, and the story ends with the devil carrying him off to hell. Now, no matter what expression of the story you've ever seen of that, anybody would say, like, man, that was a bad deal. Of course, I wouldn't sell my soul to Satan in exchange for some pleasure in this life and go to hell? What's been so strategic about this story down through the years is the term Mephistopheles and this picture of Satan being this red demon with a pitchfork because we think, yeah, I would never make a deal with that guy. But you know what this text is telling us? Forget Satan for a moment. Just substitute Satan for self. People make that deal all the time. I want to live for this life. I want to be happy now. I want to accumulate stuff now. And basically, even though you have not sold your soul to Satan, you have certainly secured that it will end up in hell if that is all you care about. When I'm looking at my cost-benefit analysis, I'm thinking, not a good deal. There isn't enough stuff on this planet for me to choose self over the Savior. But the line continues. Having considered self and stuff, there's a final line of analysis in verse 38, and he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. So this last line is significance. Significance. You can either have secular significance here in this life, or you can have divine significance. Either you can be recognized by your peers here and now, or you can be recognized by God himself in eternity. And it all hinges around the word ashamed. He gives us just two options. Either you'll be ashamed of Jesus. What, that means, what he means by that is not wanting to identify with him, and instead wanting to identify or find significance from common people of the time. And notice how he characterizes the common people. People characterized by adultery and sin. People who are spiritually cheating on God, if you will. 
and rebelling against him. Okay, you could have the approval of that group, or you could not be ashamed of Jesus, thereby being willing to identify with him, which leads to recognition, status, significance with who? The authoritative Son of Man who resides in radiant glory with his Father and in the presence of holy angels. You remember what it's like to be in high school and kind of have to pick a group that you were going to identify with? The different cliques that would exist and you know what it's like to want the approval of these people versus those people and those people versus these people. It's easy to think that you can outgrow that. But I would have you understand that it is a real pull for many to not follow Christ because they still want the approval of these people. Even better, those people. Jesus presents a stunning contrast. It's either you're going to impress the people of this world and find your significance in the here and now, or you're going to impress the people of the next world, most namely God himself, and find your significance with him. Those are your choices. And with the analysis ended, he now summarizes the analysis. The summary of the analysis is simply that the one who follows Jesus then is willing to reorient his entire life around Jesus. I'll try to put it for you in a memorable way. For the one who would follow Jesus, Jesus is not just an accessory, but essential. Jesus is not just involved in your life, but integral to it. He is not just appreciated, but adored. See, what this text tells us is that there's no such thing as a half-hearted Christ follower. It's truly all or nothing. So our Lord demands us to suffer loss in this life if we would follow him into the next. And this is pretty radical. It's pretty radical. Many of you probably know the popular story from church history about Jim Elliott. He was one of five missionaries who participated in what they called Operation Alka. And it was their effort to uh, identify and then evangelize the Hiranoi or the Hakua people of Ecuador. The plan was pretty simple. They would actually go and they were going to like drop off gifts to this particular spot in the Amazon hoping to win the favor of the people. And so they eventually set up a village bank, I mean a little village on a sandbar not far from uh, these Indians and they thought that they had curried enough favor with them to begin to approach them personally. They were gravely mistaken. Their plans were preempted by the arrival of a larger group of Hurinori warriors who killed Elliot and his companions. They found him downriver a few days later, January 8th, 1956. In the midst of his death, as they're preparing to ship his things back to the United States, they're rifling through his things, and naturally they wanted to look at his journal entries to see what his thoughts were as he had essentially prepared for certain death. And his journal entry for October 28, 1949, expresses his belief that stuff, self, and significance dedicated to Jesus was more important than anything that he could find in this life. With these immortal words he wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
This is the sentiment of the true Christ follower. What about us? Is Jesus worth it to you? The simple appeal that I would make to some of you who are contemplating whether or not to follow Jesus is to cash in. He is worth it. You've looked at the cost-benefit analysis. Why would you not lose what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose? I mean, think about it. Do you ever think about eternity? I mean, like, if it was even possible... If it was even possible, I would take that risk. (sighs) Repent of your sin. It's not worth it. Your self-rule is just not that great, I promise. It's better with Jesus at the center. Yes, it's better for eternity to come, but no matter what type of loss you would experience in this life, ask another Christian around you, it is better to live for him in the here and now. For those of you who claim to be Christians, you really have to ask yourself this question. That you need to ask, is Christ really my center? Because the question here is, is suffering really necessary for the Christian? Look, I fully realize that you or me, it's extremely unlikely that somebody is going to march in these doors, hold a gun to our head and say, do you believe in Jesus? And if you say yes, I'm going to kill you. I get it. I know that. But I'm telling you, we live in a weird world. But no matter how weird the world may be, Jesus still must be at the center of our world. And that's the question that I'm asking you, because if he's not, you're not following him. If you don't follow him in this life, you certainly won't enjoy him in the next. The true Christ follower will suffer. What do you suffer? You suffer the unbridled pursuit of stuff. You suffer worldly significance. For some of you, that's a big deal, but I'm telling you, it's worth it to give up. See, theoretically, the pursuit of and passion for Christ can happen in this unique historical window without physical death. But that being said, you still need to understand that Jesus doesn't promise to make your earthly life better or more comfortable. He actually promises that in some way, at least from this world's perspective, it's going to be worse. Yet he's still worth it. And for those of you who are following Christ, you know that Jesus is at your center. You've got to be careful to not present a crossless Christianity. You know what I mean by that. Christ without a cross, a Christianity without a cross for those who would follow him. You need to be clear that trusting in Jesus may be free, but so is joining the army. Yes. Look, you pursue Christ privately. But notice one more thing, Christian. He says, for those of you who would follow me, you'll do it by identifying with me and the gospel. It's really easy to be a private imitator of Christ, but not a public announcer of him. And yet the text here says, if you're really committed to following me, it isn't just going to be some private demonstration of your Christianity, but it will actually make its way out of your mouth in words to other people about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So radical discipleship is not optional. And we can be prepared for it. We're prepared for it as we consider the destiny of our Lord, the demand of our Lord, and and finally, the display of power from our Lord. 
It also prepares us for radical discipleship. This is a very important point. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Mark adds this, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What does that mean? What's interesting here is that to assure his original disciples and the first century followers that suffering for him would be worth it, Jesus does something amazing. He agrees to preview his divine power and thereby assure their future glory. Now, if I'm looking at the whole cost-benefit thing, I want to know that this guy has the capacity to follow through. That's why we typically ask for a down payment. (laughs) Or that's why we want a product demonstration before we buy something. This isn't just blind faith, but Jesus actually offers something for them to see ahead of time so that they can know that, yes, this will be worth it. I do want to place my faith in this because I think that this particular Messiah has the capacity to do what he says he's going to do. And what is his vow? He says, truly I say to you, official court promise, that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I wish, I wish the, the translators would do that a little more strongly because the way that it's phrased in Greek is there's two different words for no. It's the strongest possible way to say no in the Greek language. These people will by no means, in no way, experience any kind of death before seeing my kingdom come in power. So the question for us is, well, what was it that they saw before they died in any way? Well, let me tell you first what it was not. The display of power was not just a miracle. Everybody saw the miracles. He says, notice, there will only be some of you who will see this. Nor was it his parousia or his return. Jesus isn't promising that he's going to come back before these people die. Liberal scholars would try to point to that and say, well, look, see, here Jesus predicted that he was going to fully come back and rule on the earth, and yet he didn't do it. No, that's not what he's promising either. We know what he's promising here because it continues in verse 2, which we'll get to next week. But notice, after he says this, and after six days, Jesus took with him, everybody? No. Peter, James, and John, and led them up by the mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. (laughs) It's talking about the transfiguration. For those of you who maybe knew the Christian faith or you've never heard that word, the transfiguration before, basically it just means the full unveiling of who Christ was to those people. We know that Jesus was both God and man, and it was at this point that he pulls back the robe of his earthly humanity and lets them see his glory as God alone. And this would give them assurance like, wow, (laughs) we are dealing with someone who can follow through on these promises. But the interesting thing about the way this is set up is that it's not confined to the transfiguration. It also could include, secondarily, the crucifixion. That was another display of God's power. The rending of the temple veil was another display of God's power. The resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost. There would be so many displays of his supernatural power over the course of the next year that they would always be able to hold on to the fact that this guy could actually follow through with the promises that he's given us. I love that. I mean, down payments, product demonstrations, they help us close deals, and Jesus does that for us. These displays of power show us that he can follow through. Suffering, rejection, death, they're not the end of the story. He's not another failed Messiah, but he is one who single-handedly satisfied the wrath of God and rose again from the dead, giving hope for all who trust in him. 
If what the transfiguration was for those few disciples, the resurrection is for all those who follow Jesus. The displays of Jesus' power, particularly in the resurrection, have enabled followers to suffer for him through the centuries. Gary Habermas and Michael Lacona, in their book on the resurrection, it's talking about the historicity of the resurrection. These guys are scholars, they're not pastors. They write, The disciples' willingness to suffer and die for their beliefs indicates that they certainly regarded those beliefs as true. The case is strong that they did not willfully lie about the appearances of the risen Jesus because liars make poor martyrs. Think about that. Why would you die for a lie? Moreover, roughly 75% of scholars on the subjects accept the empty tomb as historical fact. 75% of scholars today will accept the empty tomb of Jesus as historical fact. Now, that doesn't mean that they all think Jesus rose from the dead. Some of them choose to believe that Jesus' body was stolen. But nonetheless, that empty tomb still stands for us as the down payment on the promise of God to be able to follow through with this whole agreement that he's worked out. If you suffer for me, you will reign with me. He has that power. And he invites us, in light of this display of power, to come to him. Yes, there may be a cross associated with Jesus. But his display of power ensures us that there will also be a crown. There will be pain in this life for following him, but his display of power ensures us that there will be a future payoff. Yes, there are dark nights of the soul, but Jesus' display of power ensures us that the day will soon break. There will be loss in this life, but Jesus' display of power guarantees us eternal gain and victory in the next. This isn't just blind hope. What does this matter for us? The empty tomb itself, Jesus' display of power, comforts us, it encourages us, it enables us to endure the scorn of a hostile world. Some of you need to remember that Christ is powerful enough to fix it all in the end, especially when your integrity and your job at the expense of promotion and applause is on the line. Being committed to Christ is worth it. Some of you, this display of power will continue to enable you to deny yourself and to remain sexually pure no matter what is being pushed on you by this outside world. It is good enough in the end. Jesus can make it right. Some of you, it is all about continuing to present the gospel. You get so tired of having those awkward conversations. You get so tired of experiencing rejection after rejection. You get so tired of those people looking at you like you are so weird, and yet Jesus' display of power reminds us that it is worth it. In the end, the text on this necessity of Jesus' suffering and ours teaches us that Christianity must be clear about its radical nature. Just a couple weeks ago, I came across a book in which a guy was writing about uh, an experience that he had with someone who was formerly a Muslim and came to faith in Christ. And this, this newly converted Muslim reflects on his experiences uh, in, in the church today as compared with his time in the mosque. Now, he grew up as a Muslim. 
And listen to this contrast. I find it stunning. He says, his Muslim friend gave him a fascinating word picture of the differences between the two movements. He drew two circles and put a small dot in each of them. So imagine that with me in your mind. Pointing to the first circle, he said, as a Muslim, I believe the circle to be my faith and the dot in the middle to be my life. Then he pointed to the next circle and said, now as a follower of Jesus, I have seen a difference in the cultural tension. To many Westerners, the circle is his life and the dot is his faith. Do you see the difference between the two? In other words, a Muslim believed that life was expendable and that his faith or his following of Allah was paramount. The Westerner, he charged, regards his life more important than what he believes. And this is why this guy ultimately said, that is why the West will ultimately be overrun. Faith in the West is a sort of extracurricular interest and a mere aspect of life for the sake of inner peace. But faith seldom enters the conscious as a conviction. You know what the text is telling us? <laughs> is that that second circle can't be true. It's not possible. It can't, your, your Christian experience, your discipleship, it can't just be a little dot. But I think the text makes it pretty clear that it's the circle. It is everything. It is a part of who you are. The circle is Jesus. The dot is life. And this may seem radical. This may require sacrifice. This may seem a little overwhelming to some of you, but I want you to know that as you consider the destiny of our Lord, the demand of our Lord, and His display of power, it all becomes possible. The only way we'll ever be able to live such a radical life of discipleship is through submission to and enamorment with our Savior. Practically, how do we get there today? How do we get to the point where the circle is our discipleship, our following of Christ, and not just the dot? I'll give you three things. First, you need to be clear on what it means to follow Jesus. I say this to our unsafe friends who are here today, people who are contemplating Christ. I'm glad you are. But in your contemplation, just be clear on what it means to follow Jesus. Very practically speaking, I, I would even recommend a couple books to you, books that we will give to you. We'll not only give you the book, we'll give you a church member to read the book with you. Maybe something that will help you, though, think through this a little better. The first book is Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert. It's a good explanation of Jesus and the implications of following him. We'd love to talk with you more about that. The other book is Am I Really a Christian by Mike McKinley. We'll buy it for you. We'll, we'll get together. We want you to be clear about what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to be up front. This isn't some bait-and-switch sales presentation. I mean, we're going to tell you, like, hey, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. These are the implications of this. We want, and look, I'll be honest, we're going to plead. We want you to trust in Him. We want you to repent of your sin and place your faith in Him. We realize you may have questions, and we want to be clear about those. So if that's you, talk to one of the pastors that you've seen today. Fill out a connection card and say, hey, I want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus. We want you to be clear on that. 
Maybe the second thing would be for our members at Faith Bible or for those of you who are partnered together with another church and committed to sharing the gospel. Similar exhortation, be clear about Jesus with others. I think sometimes we shy away from the radical demands of Jesus because we're scared of what people may think. That runs very contrary to this verse itself. Just be bold about it. Jesus says this was a necessity, not an option. Remember that a consumer Christianity, a Christianity without a cross, is no Christianity at all. You're not helping them by trying to save the hard things. That's what they need to hear. Say, I don't really understand all this. I don't know that I'm presenting the gospel in the most clear way. Well, a few things. You could just pray. Pray that God would make the gospel more clear in your own mind. Continue to examine the scriptures. All right, I've only looked at one today. But read through the gospels and see what Jesus himself had to say about following him. Not just me. Or you could talk to one of us this week. You know what? Even circle back this coming Wednesday night will be a Q&A on the radical demands of discipleship. If some of this sounds weird to you, it sounds foreign to you, you want to clarify some of this with what maybe you've read in the book of Romans, come to circle back. Let's talk about it. And then for all Christians, all Christians, be clear about him now for yourself. If you're going to live this type of life, you must constantly be remembering his suffering for your salvation. Right now, we're about to partake of a visible sign of his death on our behalf. And through that, we're recommitting ourselves to him as disciples to follow him. We're going to talk about broken bread and we're going to talk about shed blood being represented in a cup. That is to help us remember the suffering of our Savior and thereby enable us to live for him in this life. So let's remember him now. I'm going to ask our musicians if they'll go ahead and come forward. And the men who are preparing to serve us communion today, you can begin to prepare as well. And as we start this time of communion, communion let me turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and give